Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Many of you will recognize the name Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey had a daily American radio broadcast, and he told this uh, true story one day that took place uh, around an American Thanksgiving time and the Butterball Turkey Company had set up a telephone hotline to take calls uh, and answer consumer questions about uh, the, uh, the, the whole uh, challenge of preparing uh, holiday turkeys. And one woman called to inquire about a uh, uh, cooking a turkey that had been in the bottom of her freezer for 23 years. Now you laugh, but how old are some of the things in the bottom of your freezer? The Butterball representative told this, uh, this gal that the turkey would probably be safe to eat if the temperature in her freezer had consistently remained below freezing. <laughs> However, she also said to the woman, even though the turkey would probably be safe to eat, it probably would have very little flavor and would be pretty much tasteless, so she didn't really recommend that it be eaten. To which the lady on the phone responded, are you ready for this? She said, that's what I thought. I'll just give it to our church. <laughs> True story. The message this morning is called Generous Living. Generous Living. And we're looking, of course, at 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. I'm not preaching on the subject of money this morning because if I was preaching on the subject of money, I might be talking with you about a host of things like honest earning, good budgeting, proper spending, reasonable savings, smart investing, and, of course, generous giving. I might talk with you about what our attitudes should and shouldn't be toward money. And I may talk with you about some of the dangers involved with how we relate to money or the biblical priority of giving through your local church, or what tithing is, and so on, and so on. But I'm not going to be talking about all of those things so much this morning. If you are interested in any of those questions, we have prepared this booklet uh, back, oh, what's it say, 2010, um, that does go into uh, some detail uh, with uh, some of the biblical teaching with regard to those subjects. And I have 10 copies there, and you can just help yourself after we're done here. Um, but we're not going to be covering a lot of those things this morning. So our text this morning is 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And it is the largest and fullest teaching in scripture on the subject of giving. And it is occasioned by a situation. And here is the situation. Paul, the apostle, was collecting funds to take to Jerusalem to help out the believers there that were suffering in poverty. Let me read a quote to you from Philip 
Hughes. This is from the New International Commentary on the New Testament. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Listen to what he says here. He says, from its very earliest days, the apostolic church had been confronted with the problem of the extreme poverty of the Christian community in Jerusalem, the church's mother city. The preaching of the apostles on the day of Pentecost and on subsequent days had been attended by the conversion of thousands. The material cost to the majority of this great number must have been immense. Listen to what he says. Coming as they did from the background of Jewish fervor and exclusivism, it needs no demonstration that they must have become, in consequence of their conversion to Christ, the victims of social and economic ostracism, ecclesiastical excommunication, and national disinheritance. Their business enterprises must in most cases have collapsed in ruins and family bonds been heartbreakingly severed. I don't know if you've ever thought of that before, but this was the situation in the early church in Jerusalem and the historical context for what we read in Acts chapter 4. And I'm going to get Don to bring that up. Take a look at this from Acts chapter 4. You've probably read it before. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among, among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any one had need. And we often read those passages along with the rest of those early chapters in Acts and perhaps we don't appreciate the socioeconomic situation that created such an acute need uh, for that kind of sharing in the first place. But that's a little bit of the historical context in Jerusalem, the mother uh, church of Christianity in those early days. It's estimated that two years after those uh, uh, that description of the church, the early church, that the church there chose uh, the seven first deacons in Acts chapter 6 to oversee the distribution of food to the widows in order to take some of the responsibility off of the shoulders of the apostles so that the apostles could spend more time uh, praying and preaching the word, the ministry of the word, it says in Acts chapter 6. Do you remember reading that? And then it would have been five years after that again when Paul visited the church in Jerusalem for the very first time. Remember, Paul was not one of the 12, and he wasn't even, uh, uh, he was at Jerusalem for his studies, <laughs> and he was at Jerusalem as an unbeliever, and he was at Jerusalem uh, when he was persecuting Christians, but it was five years after the deacons were chose that he actually visited as a believer, as a believing apostle, uh, the church in Jerusalem. And so that was his first real opportunity then to witness for himself the situation of the saints there. And it is rather significant to note that the next visit, after his initial visit, uh, he and Barnabas went up from Antioch with a collection. 
Take a look. Acts chapter 11, 29 and 30. So the disciples at Antioch determined everyone according to his ability. That's, a, that's a, an important phrase there, by the way. Everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Okay? So then, the next time we know that Paul went to Jerusalem after that was for the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And you may recall how that all went. But one of the significant things that happened at the Jerusalem Council was the letter that was given to uh, Paul, again, to take, and Barnabas to take back to the church at Antioch. And uh, Paul comments on them sending him back in Galatians 2, 9, and 10, where we have this comment from Paul. It says, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, notice that word grace that keeps coming up, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only thing they asked us to remember, remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Interesting, isn't it? Remember the poor. <laughs> the year after writing the letter that we call 2 Corinthians, including our text today, Paul wrote to the Romans. And in that letter, if you look at Romans 15, verses 20 through to 22 through 27, we read these words. Paul to the Romans, approximately a year after our text was written today that we're going to be looking at. He said, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Again, this is Romans 15, verse 22. Verse 23 says, but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, listen to what he says. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. You're going to see in our text today, Paul talks about the believers in uh, Macedonia and the believers in, uh, at Corinth. Uh, which was in Achaia, the capital city of Achaia. For they were pleased, verse 27, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be uh, of service to them in material blessings. <laughs> the last part of that is really quite interesting, isn't it? We can understand and appreciate it even more if you think back. We won't go there. We won't take time to go there. But if you go back to chapter 11 in Romans, that's where Paul talks about how the, the Gentiles were grafted into the tree of the nation of Israel. And it had to do with, uh, a lot, has a lot to do with um, appreciating and being grateful and being uh, indebted is the word that Paul used indebted so this trip that Paul's referring to in our text today that he was talking about there in that passage um, this trip um, was his fifth one back to Jerusalem as a believer 
The fourth time he went, he took money for the poor believers there, according to his own testimony in Acts 24, 17, when he spoke before Felix, the governor, the Roman governor. So this little survey this morning that we've done, leading up to the text, and we are now going to get to, get to that, this little survey that we have, uh, we have done, uh, tells us that this was a big deal for Paul. This was not just some occasional thing. This, this wasn't some kind of special thing that, that was happening. This was a pattern of his life. How many of you, and I want to speak to Christians here this morning, if you're here and you're, you're a Christian, um, I want to, I want to uh, ask how many of you know this, that as a Christian, you owe a debt you will never be able to repay? And that debt is not just to the Lord himself either. And that's really important. Take a look at Romans chapter 1. We'll put it on the board. You can turn there if you want, but we'll put it on the, on the screen. <coughs> on the board. Yeah, it shows you how old I am. <coughs> Romans 1, uh, 13 says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus have been prevented thus far, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles, for I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are at Rome. Some translations, including this one, have shied away from the more literal meaning here because the phrase under obligation normally translates indebted. I am indebted. I think the old King James says, I am a debtor. Paul was indebted, not just, not just to the Lord himself. This is, a, this is a really fascinating thing. Over in chapter 13, he says this, Owe no man anything except to love each other. And again... The King James says, Owe no man anything except a debt of love. You owe a debt if you're here today and you uh, are a Christian. You're a follower of Christ. You've, you've trusted your life to him. You owe a debt to him that you can never repay, but it doesn't stop there. Owe no one anything except the debt of love you owe. And by implication there, you're never going to pay that one back either. How much love is enough love? Isaac Watts, the old hymn writer, said, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would I devote that sacred head for, or would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree, amazing pity, Grace unknown and love beyond degree. Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears, dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears. The last stanza says, but drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself it's all that I can do. 
that sense of, of indebtedness. Not in a bad way, but in a good way. In a very good way. Which brings us to our text this morning, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 8 uh, and 9. And starting with chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Turn with me, please. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Did you know, well, let me, uh, let me get Don to bring the map up first. Let's, uh, so he's talking about Macedonia, Donia, and, he's, and he's writing to uh, Corinth, right? Second Corinthians, Church of Corinth. Um, so uh, Paul uh, travels in Asia here, Macedonia, remember the call, Macedonian call from Troas, Macedonia, uh, and uh, Achaia is down here, and uh, um, Corinth is right there on the, on the peninsula there. And so uh, he's saying to the um, Christians at Corinth, in Achaia, he's saying, you know, I have to tell you about the Macedonians. I got to tell you about a God thing there. He said, the, the grace, I, I want you to know this, first one. I want you to know this. I want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in severe tests of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. What strong words. You don't often see those words together, do you? You don't often see the words like, Severe affliction and joy together, do you? It's quite striking, really. So, um, <clears throat> was he using some uh, constructive competition? Was he inciting constructive competition? Was was he in stirring up a sense of rivalry here in this passage as he talked to Corinthians? Uh, was he applying uh, maybe even a little guilt? He's taking up this collection, right? Uh, that's doubtful. So, so what was he doing? Why was he sharing this information with the Corinthians? I would suggest to you that he wanted to inspire them. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we need to be inspired. And it is, it's encouraging. Do you find it encouraging when you see people who have very little giving to help others. It's, it's an inspirational thing, isn't it? Um, did you know that statistically, you probably know this, but the statistics show in general that the more people have, the less they give. Did you know that? I'm not talking about, I'm not just, this is not just some kind of, um, of um, what's the word? When you don't actually know something for a, 
fact, but uh, yeah, no, not conviction. Anecdotal. This isn't just anecdotal. Um, the statistics actually show that this bears out. The more people have, the less they give. If you think that the great causes and, um, and uh, the agencies that serve those causes in our world today are funded primarily by people who ha- are well off, you are wrong. Percentage-wise, that's, that's correct. Yeah. And our church is an example of this. Um, I say that because we don't have a, a lot of wealthy people in our church. I mean, we're all wealthy by global standards, and that's important to note. But really, we're, we're what you call a, a blue-collar church. For the most part, just very, very uh, ordinary, not big-money people. And sometimes people uh, look at that and they go, I they, and sometimes it causes people to scratch their heads. You know, our, our annual, what's our annual budget uh, this year? Does anybody remember? I can't quite even remember. Jess, are you here? 309, thank you, Alex. $309,000, people say, $309,000 in Great Village, like where, where's that money come from? And of course they always start thinking, oh, there's gotta be something going on, <laughs> right? There's something going on there, you know. And uh, they don't they don't get it because because it is it is an inspirational thing you know when you think people that you know that don't have uh, you know a lot are willing uh, willing to give and I think that's what Paul is doing here he wants to encourage um, encourage the Corinthians with the example of the Macedonians now just just a point here we talk about Macedonia and a put the map up and showed you Macedonia. The, the ch- only churches that we're aware of in Macedonia that, that, uh, that are identified in the New Testament are churches uh, Philippi, the church at Berea, and the church at Thessalonica. And uh, <laughs> there probably may have been others, but those are the only three that we know of from the New Testament. And uh, it's interesting because we have no letters that were written to the church of Berea, but we have a, the letter that Paul wrote to the church of Philippi. We call it Philippians. We have two letters that he wrote to the Thessalonians. Thessalonians, right? First and Second Thessalonians. And you know what's really interesting? I, and I never thought about this before until I read it uh, just this past week as I was preparing for this morning, that those letters, First and Second Thessalonians and Philippians, are some of the very few letters that Paul wrote where he does not issue warnings to rich people. Because he does in his other letters. He's, he, you know, read Second, uh, or First Timothy chapter 5. He lays it right down for them, you know, and he has some real strong warnings. None of that in the book of Philippians. None of that in either 1st or 2nd Thessalonians. And the reason, I think, is what we're talking about here. Paul says about this Macedonian churches, they didn't have much. They didn't have much at all. It's, uh, it's pretty, uh, pretty interesting. Um, What does it mean when it says they gave beyond their means? Did you see that there? Does that mean they gave more money than they had? Well, you can't give more money than you have. So so what, what does it mean? It's uh, literally, it's interesting, it says that uh, they tell me that it means 
contrary to their ability. Now, you may recall from that passage in Acts where it says each according to his ability is a significant statement. Paul's going to use it here as well and uh, in this passage. Uh, but here he's saying contrary to their ability. Very interesting, isn't it? Um, we'll talk more about that in a minute. But, but uh, um, second, I have 2 Corinthians 8.12. If you drop down, drop down in your, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, I remember that. I remember why I put that in there. 12, verse 12 through 15. It says, um, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has. So there's that concept, right? Each man according to uh, his ability or according to what he has, not according to what he does not have. So often when we think about giving, we think about what we don't have. In fact, when we think about everything, anything, we think about what we don't have. When we think about our finances in general, it's us, it's oh, I just, I need, I need to make more money. I need to make more money. I need more money. I need more money. I always tell people, you know, it's not, it's not what you don't have. It's what you're doing with what you do have. That's, that's where, where the solution to most of our financial problems are. But anyways, we won't go there. Uh, but, but here he's saying, has, according to what he does not have, have it's according to what a person has, not what according to what he does not have. Verse 13, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance uh, at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need, that there be fairness as it is written. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. So that's in the passage there as well. And that whole idea of, of, of fairness, the whole idea of, of, of God not expecting, um, you know, us to, to um, uh, you know, be uh, doing, uh, giving uh, contrary to our ability. And yet Paul says that that's what the Mas Macedonians believer did. So, uh, believers did. So that's quite, it's a striking thing. Um, notice a few other things. Notice there in verse 3, if you uh, didn't already notice it, it says that they uh, gave of their own accord. Did you see that there in verse 3? They gave of their own accord. So this was not some kind of manipulative uh, coercion or extorting of funds from poor people that we, that we do see so often in the world. Um, have you seen that there commercial for Peter Popoff's Miracle Water? On television? How many of you have, have gotten some? Anybody get any of that miracle water? No? Per other. How do those guys stay on television is what I want to know. You know? Because that's just so wrong. That whole thing, that whole kind of thing is so wrong. That's extortion. That's what that is. Um, and that's not what this was at all. These people were giving of their own, their own accord. And... Uh, and yet we all get painted with the same brush. Uh, look, at, look at verse 4. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the, the, the saints. So that passage right there tells us that Paul was actually reluctant. He, he had to be persuaded to take these people's money. Probably because he knew that they were poor. And they didn't have a lot to give. John Christendom, who... Uh, lived in, 
and taught <clears throat> during the 4th century A.D., he, he remarked on this passage, and he said it was the Macedonians, not Paul, who had done the begging. Verse 5. And this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. That has to be... Um, very significant. So this is something else about their giving. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then uh, to us. Does this mean first in time or first in importance or does it mean both? It probably means both. But the thing here is that Paul is not likely referring to two acts of giving. It's not like they gave themselves to the Lord and then they gave themselves to us. Rather, he's probably probably means for us to uh, to to understand that when we give ourselves to the Lord, we are giving ourselves to other people. This is really important. How many of you know that God has no needs? What are you going to give somebody who needs nothing, who has everything and has no needs? But when we understand what it means for us to give as Christians, then we understand that when we give, we are giving to God first of all. Verses 6 and 7. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in, the, in our love for you, so that you excel in this act of grace, twice he calls it an act of grace, and he's saying there in verse seven uh, that they should excel in it. Um, you may recall that the Corinthian church was a very gifted church. It says in uh, in First uh, Corinthians chapter one, it says uh, verses four through seven. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they were a rich church in many, many ways. And Paul's simply saying here in this passage that we just read, verses 6 and 7, he's simply saying you excel in all these ways. Make sure you excel in this way. Why? Because it's really, really important really important. It's really important to him. 2 Corinthians 8.8 8 says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. It's not a command. Paul never, never commanded them to do this. They weren't to be given under compulsion at all. Uh, it's not a command, but it was a test. Because life is a test. And their response would most definitely demonstrate the genuineness of their identity as a gospel people because they knew the gospel. And Paul, as he continues here in verse 9, says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. 
Notice how personal Paul gets with them. You know for your sake that you by his poverty. He's totally personal. Paul makes it very personal because it is personal. Because the gospel is personal. Because God is personal. And if you don't personally know this reality, then you can't experience Christian love and service and giving either. Because you'd be giving for a whole set of other reasons. But if you know, if you personally know, then this is what the gospel looks like lived out in your life. Um, I'm going to keep pushing through here because I get some things later on in chapter 9 we want to get to. Uh, verses 10 to 11 indicate that this collection was something that the Corinthians had actually started some time ago. And there's an indication in the text there that Paul hadn't even instigated this. Verses 12 through 15, we just read a moment ago. Verses 16 through 24 contain some of the procedures that Paul had put in place to ensure transparency and accountability and integrity in the handling of these funds. Um, you could call them internal controls that he put in place, like, for example, the fact that the money collected was never to be handled by one individual at all, ever. And uh, uh, we still use some of those, those internal controls even today to ensure that things are done right and things are above reproach, and they're important. Um, and, and they were important, and Paul recognized them as important then. So if you look through those verses, verses 16 to 24, uh, you will see uh, the measures that he put in place to ensure that kind of integrity. And then as we come into chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 5, we'll read there. It says, Now it is uh, superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that, uh, Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them, but I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready for ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. <clears throat> so this is a rather direct explanation of the situation, rather blunt but to the point. Paul is saying you're gonna have, you need to follow through on this, people. If you don't follow through, you're, I'm going to look bad. You're going to look really bad. I don't know how you feel about that type of blunt comment, but obviously Paul felt he had enough of a relationship with these people to tell them like it was, and, and uh, it's true, right? It's true. But he says in verse 5, he says, um, so that... Is it verse 5 or 7? Um, so I thought necessary. Well, in verse, yeah, in verse 7, so that, so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. And that seems to be 
a big part of Paul's concern here. In fact, in fact, it, it is a big concern, and it's, in some ways it's the main point because what follows after that is really an explanation of this point, which is that giving has, this, is, this has all got to be willing. This, this, can't be, this can't be me or anybody else, you know, put it, turning the screws on you. That's not what I'm, not what I'm doing here, Paul's saying. That's not, that's not the way this works. You said you wanted to participate, and all I'm saying is, you know, we're going to be coming there, and we're going to have some of those Macedonians with us. I sure hope you're ready, because if you're not ready, it's gonna, you're going to look really bad. I'm going to look bad. But most importantly of all, then it's not going to be a willing offering. And that's really, really, really important. We need to get a handle on that. We need to remember that, that when we talk about giving in the context of our Christian lives and, and ministry and, and, and our lives in, in the church of Jesus Christ, that it's never under compulsion. Despite the rumors, we do not know what anybody gives. And we do not police what people give. And we don't have anybody's PIN number. <laughs> We just don't function that way because we're not supposed to function that way. This is not some kind of uh, tax, you know, that we levy on people. That's not the way this works. And it didn't work that way then, and it doesn't work that way, way now. And so Paul wants to emphasize that. So if he comes to the end of that little spiel that he gives, and we go into the last section here of uh, chapter 9, verses 6 and following, um, I just want to read through verse 6 through to verse 15, and then I want to, I want to point out three things. Oh, man, it's 12 o'clock already. All right. It's raining anyway. Um, uh, let's read together. The point is this. Okay? That's what he's saying. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, they call that the abundant life, by the way. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Make no mistake, this is all about the gospel and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. And then he ends this section by saying, as Andrea read for us earlier, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Now, I want to say three things as quickly as I can about some of the things coming out of that passage. The first thing I want to say is that the operation, again, there are probably more than three things there that could be said, but I, I want to, the three things that kind of rose up 
before me was, number one, the operating principle for Christian life and blessing. The operating principle for Christian life and blessing is grace. The way of Christ is not self-protectionist clinging and hoarding, but it is the exact opposite. It is a letting go. It is a giving, just like taking that precious seed, that food, and putting it in the ground. It takes faith. It's the opposite of what makes common sense. But Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when it says that the, earlier that the Macedonian churches, the Macedonian Christians gave beyond their means, chapter 8, verse 3, I think that that is what Paul was getting at. He was saying they trusted God. They were putting their futures in God's hands. They were giving beyond their means or beyond their ability because they realized that, that this was not about their abilities. It's about God's abilities to care for his people. <clears throat> that doesn't mean it's wrong to plan ahead or wrong to save, but the question is, where's our hearts at? Because Jesus says where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Back in 8.15, chapter 8, verse 15, Paul quotes from the Exodus about uh, the manna. And if you caught that passage when we read through there, it says, he who gathered much had nothing over, and he who gathered little had no lack. We need to ponder that. We need to think about that. We need to think about what that means and why it's there and why it is significant. He who gathered much had nothing over. He who gathered little had no lack. Those who thought, well, I'm going to gather more so I'll have a whole bunch of manna. The next day it was all rotten. Why did God do that? And, the, and, 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 in, the, and in the context, it's so clear. Because he wanted them to know that the manna would be there tomorrow on the ground from him. Because he said, you need to learn this lesson that man does not live by bread alone every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. The uh, American uh, founders of the United States of America believed so strongly and understood this so strongly that they had the words in God be trust inscribed on their money. Uh, not sure how many Americans really still feel that way and we're probably worse off than they are, but anyways, that's another story. Number two, there is more joy to be found in giving than almost anything else in life. The word is translated cheerful. God loves a cheerful giver. It is the Greek word hilaros. And when you hear that Greek word hilaros, it probably, maybe, sounds a little bit to you like an English word. And that would be the word hilarious. And you'd be right, because that's the where the word hilarious comes from. It comes from this Greek word, hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. <laughs> you know, when's the last time you put your offering in and, and, and just cracked you up? Like... <laughs> Like, maybe if it was a, a quarter, that would crack you up. But hopefully that's not why you were cracked up. Um, a, a, 
there's a connection here between trust and joy. And, 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 I, and I know we're running late, but, but, but don't miss this. There's a connection here between trusting God and having joy in your life. Because there is a sense of abandon. There's a sense of abandon that comes with trusting. Not unlike what you experienced when you were a child. Because a generous life is a joy-filled life. A generous life is a joy-filled life. But that's not the picture that we have of it in our minds often a lot of the times. We don't associate joy with sacrifice. We, we picture it as such a serious thing, a, a sorrowful thing. I'm giving up my hard-earned money. This, you know, we say give till it hurts. For some of us, that's a dollar because it, it hurts to give, us any, to give anything. And we have this attitude about all kinds of things. We have the attitude about prayer. Like prayer is such a, such a sacrifice, sacrificial thing to do. You know? So we make our faces long and our eyes sad when we, when we pray. Listen to what Jesus said about, fa- about, about fasting. He said, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, you they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. For your, that your fasting may be, uh, not be seen by others, but by your fathers in secret. Um, but we, we like to take that miserable posture, you know, so often in our lives. It's like, this is really hard. It's really hard. And you know that the word miserable and the word miser, right? You know all that. I won't go into that with you. You know that. But And sometimes it's so hard for us to, to keep a hold of the fact and to really live out of the fact that, that the path of life um, the path of life and joy and blessing it's not getting storing and hoarding but it's giving. And the more we think we search for joy the less joy we have. And the more we live for ourselves, the less joy we have in our lives. And as I said, the point is that very, very few things in life will give you more joy than giving. And then the third thing and the final thing is that God is glorified when we give like this. That's in the passage there. God is glorified when we give like this. God gets the honor and gets the credit that he deserves. And uh, it's not just in the giving either. It's in, it's in our attitudes. And when we, when we respond, the attitudes of our heart, trusting him and responding in love to others, just as if we were children of God, frolicking along the path of life, trusting in his faithful care. It's part of what it means to be his child to live as his child in this world, to be a generous person. Now, in chapter 8, verse 1, Paul starts this whole conversation by referencing the grace of God in the lives of the Macedonians. 
And then as he talks on through the passage in verse 6 and verse 7, he twice refers to this as an act of grace. And then Paul ends the whole section with the words, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. And there in the middle of the discussion in chapter 8, or in the 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. How he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. And the emphasis throughout is on the grace of the Lord uh, in, our, in our lives. Now, Paul was talking here about, about money because he was taking up this collection, but really, really this is about a lot more than money. I hope you can see that this morning because Jesus didn't give us money. When it says, you know, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was rich, became poor, it wasn't talking about money. This is about so much more than money. Money is helpful as an indicator because Jesus says, where your heart is there, where your treasure be also. But this is about way more than money. This is about, about your heart. Where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. This is, this is about your heart. We, or we could talk about other things. We could talk about your time. How generous are you with your time? It's just as important. When it comes to helping people and, and serving, that takes time and attention. How generous are we with our attention? Giving people our attention. Paying attention. Oh, I get my mind's going here, my mind's going there, and I got so many things to do. Am I willing to actually just really listen to what somebody's saying to me? You see, there's a whole lot more to living generously than just what we do with our money. Money can be a helpful, helpful indicator to help us really examine our generosity in our lives. But this is about way more than, than, than money. Um, how, how forgiving am I? Because forgiveness is a form of giving. And it springs out of the forgiveness that we experience ourselves in Christ. Right? Same as what Paul is saying here. How generous are we with our praise? Think about that for a moment. Now, you're going to have to be generous with your attention to be generous with your praise because if you're going to be generous with your praise, you're going to have to actually notice what's going on in people's lives and you're going to have to notice the work of God in their lives so that you can... Be generous with your praise. But it's all about how generous we are. How generous am I as a person? Am I one of those people that expect a lot from others? Am I a demanding, am I a demanding person? Because it's hard to be a demanding person, be a generous person. Am I what my dad would call a real stickler? Be careful what you expect of other people. Are you living a generous life 
It's more than just actions. It's even more than a lifestyle. It's more of a life source because it is a life enabled and fueled by the grace we experience from God. When, uh, when those um, Macedonians, those Philippians and those Thessalonians gave themselves first to God, they knew it, they understood this. They gave of themselves because of what God had done in their lives. That takes generosity to a whole new, new level. And if we're really going to understand um, the kind of um, grace that the Bible talks about when it talks about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the grace that transforms us, then we're going to have to take a really good, hard, long look at what it means to live a generous life in all the aspects of it. Am I a generous person? Am I generous in the way I interact with people? The way I relate to people? My demeanor? Do I give myself, my heart, my time, my money, my life to God first? And then to others consequentially. But it all hinges on this. It all hinges on this. Do you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, became poor, that you, through his poverty, might be made rich? Do you know? When Paul said that, he wasn't talking about knowing something like the, you know where Arizona is. He was talking about the kind of know where it says that Adam knew Eve. That kind of know. That relational, close, intimate, relational uh, relation, relationship with someone. Do you know Jesus like that? I'm going to get you to stand. If you have any questions or comments that you would like to offer, we do have our, the podcast that Alex mentioned earlier, and uh, I encourage you to do that. You can email me. My email is there on the screen right now. It's really easy to remember, I think, and uh, we, we would love to hear from you. I would love to hear from you. So I've, been, uh, I've indulged myself with your time this morning. And you've been very gracious giving me this extra time. I thank you for that. I don't like taking it for granted because I know you have lots of things you could be doing even right now, like eating. That'd be good. Uh, but I just want to indulge you just for another few moments and ask you to consider uh, praying with me this morning. And as we go to prayer and ask God to bless this scripture to our hearts, let me ask you one more time, do you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ personally? Because you can't live it out if you've never had him give you that. Grace means gift. 
Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Can't even describe how great the gift from God is in Jesus. He gave his son for God so loved the world. He gave his only son. Do you have Christ in your life? Have you experienced his grace, the gift of eternal life, the forgiveness of your sins, the gift of his presence in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit? You can. And it's called the abundant life. And you can live out of it. And you'll experience the joy of the Lord in your life and the blessing beyond measure. Father, I thank you for each one here today. And for those who maybe have not taken that step, that simple step of faith and trusting you, Lord, I pray that you give them the ability to do that today. Even now, Lord, that they might reach out to you by simple, humble faith and just say yes to Jesus. Lord, I thank you for dying on the cross for me. I am forever indebted for the price that you paid so that I can know your love and joy and peace in my life. I receive you now as my Savior. I pray you forgive me. Take me and make me yours. Lord, that I might live my life for you and for others and be filled with your grace and that it might overflow in a generous, joyful life for your glory, for my good. Lord, I pray for these people this morning, for all of us, that we would be a generous people. You would help us to live out of the grace of Jesus Christ in our lives. In Jesus' name, I pray.